Morning, Woodmont. Welcome to worship on this first Sunday in March. Uh, started to experience some spring weather this week, and hopefully uh, we have more of that on the way. Uh, let's begin today with a word of prayer. Loving God, open our hearts and minds that we can hear a word from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week we were in Mark chapter 4 and we looked at the story where Jesus and the disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and uh, the disciples went to wake Jesus up and he calmed the storm. And so I, I finished the sermon last week with three ways that we can turn uh, to Christ during the storms of life. And I want to just lift those back up again. The first way is that we read and study Scripture, uh, God's Word. Uh, so many Christians do not spend regular time reading and studying the Bible, and it makes such a big difference. The second thing that I said is that we need to remember that being busy for God is not the same thing as spending time with God. Many of us can be busy for God, do a lot of things, go to a lot of meetings, but that's not the same thing as spending time with God, being in God's presence, spending time in prayer, spending time outside in, in nature, um, and, and blocking out all of our challenges and problems and, and, and listening to God. And the last thing I said is that we need to make our minds up, especially during this particular time, that we are not going to be paralyzed by fear. Uh, fear is always going to be part of our lives. Human beings have to deal with fear and anxiety. And, and there are certain things that we worry about, but we cannot get to a place where fear completely paralyzes us and, and prevents us from living uh, a full life, which is what Christ wants for us. We're continuing our journey in Mark, uh, the series called The Life of Jesus. And today we move ahead to chapter six, to a miracle that is actually one of the only miracles recorded in all four of the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples have been out teaching two by two in the villages. They've just received word of the death of John the Baptist, which was a very uh, significant event uh, because, you remember, John the Baptist was the one who came before Jesus. He was the one who paved the way for Jesus. He baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. So they come back together and uh, Jesus says, let's get into a boat and let's go to a deserted place so that we can be alone. Because Jesus valued the time that he would get to spend with his disciples just by themselves. Well, the only problem is they are not left alone. Mark tells us that when they get to the shore, many people have arrived ahead of them wanting to hear Jesus. They wanted to hear him teach thousands were waiting. And when Jesus sees this, he, he has compassion on the people, Mark says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he starts to teach. It's getting late in the day. And so the disciples say to Jesus, we must send these people away so that they can go to the nearby villages and get something to eat. But what does Jesus say? He says, no, you give them something to eat. 
And the disciples say, well, what are we supposed to do? Go buy 200 denarii worth of bread? You know, basically, they're saying, how is this possible? How can we ever feed all these people? Jesus says, go and see what you have. And so they, they bring back five loaves of bread and two fish. What does Jesus do? He tells them to get the people to sit in groups of 50 or 100. He takes the two fish and the five loaves of bread. He looks up to heaven. He breaks it. He divides the food among all the people. Mark then tells us that all ate and were filled, and they were able to collect 12 baskets left over. Now, either one of two things happened here. Either Jesus has magically taken two small fish and five loaves of bread and has multiplied it to feed 5,000 people, and I'm certainly not going to rule that possibility out, or he has taught a miraculous lesson about sharing and how sharing can be a miracle in and of itself because there is plenty to go around. Biblical scholars, uh, New Testament scholars, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan have this to say about this particular uh, miracle. They say, note that Jesus does not bring down manna from heaven or turn stones into bread. Jesus takes what is already there, the five loaves and two fishes, and when it passes through Jesus's hands, there is more than enough for everyone present. The point of this story, they say, is not multiplication, but distribution. The food is already there and there is enough. And when it passes through the hands of Jesus, we see the incarnation of divine justice and sharing. Borg and Crossan say the disciples, you can think of them as the already present kingdom community, do not see that their responsibility is to feed all these people, but they are forced to accept it by Jesus. Behind that, of course, is an entire theology of creation in which God owns the world, demands that everybody gets their fair share of its goods, and appoints humans as stewards to establish God's justice on earth. Now, many theologians and biblical scholars, rightly or wrongly, will automatically take this story, the feeding of the 5,000, and they will relate it to economics. Now, I've studied a little bit of economics, but I'm certainly not an expert on that. But in seminary, certain questions, very difficult questions would be asked. Questions like this. Is it fair that we live in a world where some people are multimillionaires, but other people can't eat and they go hungry? Is it fair that we live in a world where some people have four houses, but other people live on the street? Is it fair that we live in a world where some people will spend the same amount of money on one meal and wine at a fancy restaurant as it would cost to feed a family of four for half a year in a third world country? Is it fair that we live in a world where we spend 
billions of dollars on war and foreign aid. But there are children in our own cities and in our own communities who are starving to death. Is it fair that we pass COVID relief bills that have all kinds of random projects tucked into them and a lot of the money doesn't actually go to the people that are hurting because of the pandemic? Those are tough questions that we should ask and wrestle with. And the answer to these questions is no, it's not fair. And we know that life is not fair. We recognize that. But what that means is we have to do everything we can to share what we have with people who have little or nothing. Jesus said, just as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and in prison. You visited me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Now, it gets complicated when we start talking about economics because everybody has very strong opinions about economics. Capitalism isn't perfect, but I am thankful that the free market system has helped lift billions of people around the world out of abject poverty. Capitalism allows us to create a better life for many people, but it's not perfect. And yes, there is vast inequality, and that's not a secret. Stanley Hauerwas and Will Williman, both taught at Duke, they wrote a great book called The Truth About God, where they focused on the Ten Commandments. And in dealing with the Ninth and the Tenth Commandment about coveting, they say this, We think we deserve what our neighbor has. And anything our neighbor has that we do not have diminishes us. The socialist calls the capitalist or capitalism legalized greed. And the capitalist calls the socialism legalized envy. And both have truth to what they say. You see, part of the problem is that we are all guilty of getting so caught up in the materialistic rat race of life that we so easily forget that there are people who don't have anything to eat or who don't have anywhere to live or who don't have anything to wear, a jacket to keep warm. Should we feel guilty about what we have in our own lives? Not necessarily, but should we do everything in our power to help those who have little or nothing? Absolutely. Jesus says yes, because there is plenty to go around when we learn how to share, when we learn to acknowledge the need and then go and address the need. Now, preachers don't talk about greed very much because it's not a very popular topic. It makes people uncomfortable. And it's always somebody else who's being greedy, not us, right? Greed is not defined by what we have, but by whether or not we keep all that we have to ourselves. Greed is a spiritual condition that crosses all socioeconomic levels. Simply being rich does not make a person greedy, but being rich and never giving back and never sharing does make a person 
greedy. Harawas and Williman say something that I actually disagree with. They say, we have learned to call greed ambition or providing for my family. We've learned to call greed getting ahead. We've learned to call greed working for a better life. I'm not sure I totally agree with that because I think that ambition and providing for your family and working for a better life, I don't think that's the same thing as greed. Many are working hard day after day to provide for their family and they can hardly pay their bills. They're barely getting by. There are many others who have more than enough and still feel as though they are strapped. Because money issues are private, we generally don't know what other people make or when they are struggling or whether or not they're being generous. Therefore, we can only determine for ourselves whether or not we are being greedy. Are we using what we have to help other people? Everybody can be funny or people can be funny when you start talking about money and, and, and who has what and whether or not people are sharing. And, 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 you know, don't you love it when people say, oh, that person's loaded or, or that person is, is, is killing it. There are some people who have plenty of money and they like to show it off. There are also some who pretend that they have plenty, but they're actually drowning in debt. Since money and possessions seem to be the default scoreboard in our culture for determining whether or not a person is successful, Americans tend to judge others solely by these measures. However, conspicuous display is not always evident. There are some people who have a lot, who give away a lot, and who still have more than enough left over. This doesn't make them greedy. There is often a hostility and a resentment in our culture towards those who have a lot. And in many cases, I think it's unwarranted. There's nothing wrong with working hard and reaping the benefits of your hard work as long as you remain generous and grounded in the process. Generosity is not defined by giving the bare minimum. No one socioeconomic class has a monopoly on greed because greed is a condition of the heart. And guess what? So is generosity. One of the saddest things in our culture today is this concept or this phrase that you've heard before called keeping up with the Joneses. Now, I don't know who the Joneses are, but everybody talks about keeping up with the Joneses. And, and, and basically what that mindset does is it keeps us from being grateful for what we have because we are always focusing on what other people have that we don't and how we wish we had what they had. Every single one of us has to answer for ourselves whether or not we're being greedy or generous. And we can't make that call for somebody else. But if we are followers of Jesus, then we cannot argue that we have a moral obligation to look out for those who have little or nothing when it comes to the basic essentials of life, like food and clothing and shelter, education. And as a church, we try to do that. We try to do that with our, our financial outreach and we try to do that with our hands-on mission. When I think about this miracle in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, I think it, it, it boils down 
to just a couple of core lessons. The first core lesson is we need to ask, are we approaching life with a mindset of scarcity or a mindset of abundance? What's the difference? Well, a mindset of scarcity says that there's never going to be enough, and so I've got to hold on to what I have. An abundant mindset says God has provided plenty to go around, and so I'm going to be generous. A scarcity mindset says I've got to keep what I have because I might need it one day. An abundant mindset says I will give knowing that God will continue to provide. A scarcity mindset says let that person give. They have way more than I than I do, but an abundant mindset says what I decide to give away has absolutely nothing else with what others have and what they give. You see, Christ calls us to live with an abundant mindset, and he calls us to share. And what we find is that when we share what we have with others, it is a liberating feeling and we are the ones who are actually blessed. Some of you remember a story I told about my uh, son, Clayton, back when he was five. Uh, and we'd be coming to church every week, and Megan and I would give him a dollar. And he was supposed to put that dollar in the Sunday school offering. Well, this went on for a couple of months. And one night we walked into his closet and uh, looked down, and we saw that he had a little box full of dollars. And so we confronted him, and we said, Clayton, where did you get this money? Are these the dollars that we gave you to put into the Sunday school offering? He sat there and he nodded his head. And I said, well, well, Clayton, why didn't you give that money to the offering? And he probably gave me the most honest answer anybody has ever given me. He looked at us and he said, well, Daddy, it's because I love money and I didn't want to share it. How many adults would admit to that? The second lesson from this miracle is that we need to notice here that Jesus meets people where they are. They are tired and they are hungry. And so he tells his disciples, give them something to eat. Don't send them away, but give them something to eat right now. One priest put it this way. He said, Jesus met the crowds as they were, seeking sick and eventually hungry, he had no threshold to impose. Jesus never expected that to be in his company, you must be good company. That is clever, attractive, well-off, healthy. Jesus accepted people where they were in his days on earth, and Jesus still does so now. Jesus accepts us where we are, worried, frightened, anxious, confused, weary, tired of Today's issues, the pandemic, national strife, separation, isolation, oppression, a sagging economy, threatening our personal finances. Jesus will always have compassion on people and Jesus always meets us where we are. And he calls us to go and meet each other where we are. Finally, the third lesson from this miracle is the basic lesson that when Jesus is involved, there will always be enough to go around. We learn to take care of each other. We learn to share and not just look out for ourselves. 
And when we do this, we become liberated. We become fulfilled when we give what we have away to help others. About 12 years ago, many of you know this story, some of you may not, but 12 years ago, there were some guys in Nashville uh, who were old high school buddies who went to NBA together, and they were listening uh, to a story on NPR. The, it was Bill and Gordon Pierman, Rob Barrick, Barry Holt. And they heard about this organization called Mobile Loaves and Fishes. It was based in Austin, Texas. And they said, you know what? We should bring that to Nashville. And so they did. And they brought it to Nashville, and it first set up shop over at St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church. Well, volunteers started coming, and the organization started growing. And, uh, and they needed some more space, and we had South Hall, which is where we do a lot of our uh, outreach ministries. So we decided to move Mobile Oves and Fishes uh, here onto the Woodmont campus um, and, uh, and, 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 and set it up here on, on, at our church. Well, in 2009, uh, that's when we brought the uh, organization. Later that year, we hired a very special person uh, named Toulouse Schuyler Quinn, to come and head up uh, this chapter of Mobile Oves and Fishes. Well, with Toulouse's vision and with her uh, just her tenacity and her drive, she took that chapter of Mobile Oves and Fishes, she grew it into a nonprofit. We named it the Nashville Food Project. It continued to grow and grow and grow. And then it had to go and, and, and build its own home in the nations. And now it's a thriving nonprofit serving the needs of hungry people in this community. And of course, you, you know that we are uh, praying for Tolu right now because she's battling a, a very aggressive brain tumor. But it was her vision, it was her tenacity, piggybacking off of those guys that brought mobiles and fishes here to say, you know what? We have resources, we have energy, we can go and feed hungry people in this community. And that's what happened. And there's so many other ways that we can take this miracle found in Mark 6 and we can go and live it out. And I think Jesus is challenging us to do that in our own lives. Amen.